We are continuing our study of the book of Mark, and uh, we are now quickly approaching the end of chapter 1. As we get ready to finish out chapter 1, I wanted to take just a moment and review quickly a few things that we have noticed thus far. Uh, First and foremost, what is the book about? It's about Jesus. Okay, anything else? You remember all the way back in verse 1, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The focus of the book, yes, is Jesus, but specifically about proclaiming or letting it be known the gospel. Now, we talked about how that the gospel, that word merely means the good news. But it's, it's a word that's used in relation to like someone coming in and announcing a victory or that, that something big has just happened. And so this is the announcement, the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. First of all, Jesus is God. Secondly, Jesus is man. And as we go through, we're going to find this, this truth is one of those, it's, it's hard to understand It's hard to to nail down exactly how does that work and what's going on with all of that. But Jesus is both of those. Now, so far as we've been going through, we found that, that John, John the Baptist, was sent as the forerunner of Jesus. Prophecy had talked about him, and John appears on the scene and lets it be known that the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, he's on his way. He's almost here. And John lays the groundwork and, and really sets the foundation in preparation for Jesus to come onto the scene. Well, Jesus does show up. And in the book of Mark, there's not a lot of overlap between John the Baptist and Jesus. And that's, yes, they did have some time that they were both ministering, but what Mark is, is really emphasizing is who Christ is. And so John is just there to set the stage and get things ready, and then he disappears. He's taken off the scene. He's, ultimately, he's sent into prison. But Jesus then takes over that mission or that goal of proclaiming the good news of who God is. We looked at that back in uh, verses 14 and 15. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And that's the, the message that Jesus wants to let know, let, let be known, is this message that God has sent him to tell people to repent and believe. Last week we saw Jesus gather four of his first disciples and then he cast out a demon while he was in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. And after that they went to Peter's house and he healed Peter's mother-in-law who'd been sick for, for some time. It appears that they were there for a meal and that's where the section that we're about to get into really picks up. Now, when I've talked about the Gospel of Mark, I've mentioned that it's very fast-paced. It keeps going, and there's a lot of different things going on. And so each time when we start, we do need to bear in mind what happened right before. Because, for example, this week, we pick up right after that. And so it's all happening on the same day. It's all happening in that same context. They are at Peter's house. They, Jesus has just healed Peter's mother, and the same time frame is going on, um, and that's where we're going to pick it up. 
this, this section that we're about to get into is, is really, really fascinating. Now, obviously, all of them are. When, it, when we're looking at Scripture, all of it is fascinating. But this one in particular is interesting because Christ is going to set for us an example, and then he's going to make a statement about what he's about, and then he's going to do something. And, and that something that he does, we look at it, and, and it's, it's interesting, it's cool, it's neat. But we're going to take a little bit of time and kind of dig into the details and the cultural significance of what he does. And I think when you understand the impact of what he's doing, it's, it's going to blow your mind about, about how Jesus is going about doing this ministry, how he's just starting out as we're getting started in the Gospel of Mark. So, as is my standard practice, we are going to read through the whole section, and then we're going to go back and we're going to find those different things that I just talked about of what Jesus is doing in this section. So, Mark chapter 1, verses 32 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 45. And when evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there also. For that is what I came out for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to him, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And, moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing to be cleaned. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him, and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See, that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for a testimony to them. But he went out, and began to proclaim it freely, and to spread the news about, to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere." As I said, this section picks up right after the last part. It says, when evening came after the sun had set. Now, why do you think that that's significant? What, what is Mark telling us in that little bit right there? Hmm? The Sabbath has ended. Now, obviously, any time that you approach Scripture, it's really good to make sure that you understand just a little bit about the cultural background and the things that are going on. He is in an area that has a lot of Jews. The first thing that he did when he got to the city was go on the Sabbath day into the synagogues. And he was teaching there. Okay, And that's the day that we've been dealing with. That same day, he went in and he was teaching. That was back in uh, verse 21. He entered the synagogue and began to teach. And everyone was amazed by his teaching. And so this was something different, something that they weren't expecting, something they weren't used to. And we we saw last week the episode of what was going on. Well, like I said, he went then after that to Peter's house, and they had a meal. They sat down, and and after he healed Peter's mother-in-law, she served them, and they were able to pause for a moment 
And, and that's really part of what the Sabbath day was all about. It was a day of rest. They weren't supposed to work. They weren't supposed to travel. They weren't supposed to be doing a lot of things. They were supposed to stop and pause. Yes, ma'am. Have you been reading my notes? No, it's a good question. <clears throat> it is an excellent question. So let me ask. Let me ask you: Is healing acceptable on the Sabbath? That's a good question. Do what? Not according to the Pharisees. Um, I I don't want to ignore the question or skip it. But we're actually going to approach that one in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So if you want to take the time and, and read through that, that's when Jesus is going to deal with that question. Um, I, think, I think that there's a couple of things going on here of why Mark is, is going into such detail to let us know that it's evening and the Sabbath day is over. And one of them is this idea about the Jewish mindset and awareness um, they were not supposed to work. They were not supposed to travel. They were not supposed to do a lot of things. And here, Mark is letting us know that the Sabbath day had ended, that it was over. Now, like I said, we are going to deal with this idea of, is it okay to be healing on the Sabbath or not? And that's a good question. Jesus is going to prove himself as having authority over the Sabbath day later, eventually. That's not what he's doing in this section and in this passage. And so... Was he just waiting until then? I don't think that that was, was his point or his reasoning. I think what Mark's saying is all of these crowds, they were obeying the Sabbath. They didn't want to carry people who were ill and had to be transported because that would have been a violation of the Sabbath laws. They didn't want to travel whatever the distance was because there, there was just a certain amount of distance that they were allowed to travel on the Sabbath day. And so if they had gone from their home to the synagogue and then back to their house, I'm not sure how many steps they had counted necessarily, but they didn't want to violate the Sabbath law. And so the crowds are part of who had been waiting uh, until that, that right time had come. As, as is normal, though, Mark keeps this story moving, and it's the same day. Everything's happening all at once, and he's going through this and continuing to tell the significance of just one day of what Jesus did. Like I said, I think that, that um, it is significant that he's letting us know about the Jewish mindset and their awareness um, of what was going on, and this group starts to gather. Now, like I said, you'll remember from last week, they are at, uh, on the Sabbath day, but what town are they in? Who remembers where, where they're at? Or you can just look back to uh, verse 21. Do what? Capernaum. Okay, they're in the city of Capernaum, which isn't a, a huge city. It's probably about 1,500 uh, inhabitants, and it was largely focused on fishing. Now, I like to try and make a connection and get some type of a, a picture in my mind, and obviously this picture isn't a perfect example, but when I think of Capernaum, I really think of Lapine. It's a small-ish town. Most people know each other. It's along a major trade route, Highway 97. Well, Capernaum was also along a major trade route, so there'd be a lot of people passing through. <clears throat> it was also um, 
focused largely on fishing. Now, I don't know that Lapine is necessarily hugely focused on fishing, but it is in this area a little bit. Um, but it's this medium small town with a major highway and a lot of opportunities for that. Not exactly the same, I realize, but definitely some similarities. Now imagine for a moment that somebody really, really famous walked into Lapine. I, I'm not saying famous like a, a major politician or a, an actor. I mean like someone that was world-renowned changing lives. Doing, do what? <laughs> even, even bigger. Even bigger. Like, like, even able to do miracles. What, what kind of reaction would that get? I mean, I think that it would be reasonable that people would start showing up and trying to figure out what's going on. And some would be showing up just out of curiosity. Others would be showing up hopeful that he could do something for them. And in all of this, we see that that's exactly what happens. And they show up at Peter's house. Now, I don't know about you, but like I said, I like to kind of sometimes picture these things. Can you imagine what Peter's mother-in-law must have been thinking at that point? I mean, she'd been sick with a fever for, for an extended period of time, and then all of a sudden, all of these people are flocking to the house. In my mind, I'd be thinking, man, how am I going to feed these folks? What am I going to do? And, you know, she gets, again, I'm maybe reading into it, but I wonder what maybe Peter was thinking. What am I going to do with all these guests? I mean, they're showing up on my doorstep. How am I going to... But what does Jesus do? He doesn't get into any of that kind of thing. He doesn't ex- exhibit any kind of worry or, or trouble and any of that. Instead, well, going back to the text, it says, When evening had come and the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. What does Jesus do? He starts healing them. It says, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. They all just started arriving at his door. Now, obviously nothing said of Peter's mother-in-law's response or of, of uh, Peter's response or anybody else, but Jesus takes it in stride and he begins to interact with them. And he starts to deal with their physical needs. That's, that's what this idea of healing is. By healing many who had these various diseases. And this, this word of various, it's not just like one kind of disease or, or small amounts of disease. Anything and everything. He was dealing with all kinds of physical issues. Mark doesn't bother to, to go into detail at this point of what those are. But all of these folks who showed up at the door, he's taking care of them. And it, um, it says that he healed many diseases or many who were ill, not just a couple, not one or two just to, to kind of prove that he could and then left the others alone. Like he's spending time taking care of these folks physically, but more than that, he's also dealing with their spiritual needs. See, he's also casting out demons. Now, interestingly enough, the word for cast out is the same word that was used by the Holy Spirit of him. The Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. It's that same idea of casting it out. Now, obviously, I think that there's a a pretty big difference. But the point is that there was no choice. There was no discussion. They simply went. With Jesus, I think that he was a willing participant. He was excited to do what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do. He was willing to go out. I don't necessarily think that that's true of the demons. I get the impression that they kind of wanted to do opposite of what Christ wanted them to do. 
And yet, we are shown his power and his authority, his ability to do it. They didn't get to argue with him or anything else. They just had to go. Now, I do think that it is worthwhile to take a little bit of time and consider this idea of demon possession. It's it's one of those things that comes up throughout Scripture, and we're going to see over and over and over again people who are demon-possessed showing up and Jesus dealing with it. But in our modern day and in our society, there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstanding about what that's talking about. So I wanted to take just a, just a moment, just a little bit of time to consider it. As you go through the New Testament, you're going to find that it shows up in a variety of ways. We're not going to take the time to look them all up, but you start studying this idea of demon possession. It comes up in a lot of different ways, and it shows itself in a lot of different ways. Uh, methods. There's a, there's a wide spectrum of what those look like. The term itself could potentially be more like demon-influenced or under demon control. And so we, we get this idea of being possessed by, but it also has the idea of being influenced or directed or guided by um, under the control of demons. And we're not ever really given a test of how to know whether something is or isn't, whether, whether we recognize that it is or isn't a demon that's in control of the situation. Because of all of that, I would caution jumping to too much conclusion. Is it possible today? Yes. I don't see any reason to say that, that demon possession doesn't happen or demon influence doesn't happen. But is it as prevalent as some groups try and make it sound to be? I would say probably not. Um, however, we do need to be conscious of the existence of the spiritual realm and the conflict that goes on in the unseen world. Now, as I said, there is a spectrum um, in which people can be influenced by demons. A good example is going to come up actually in Mark chapter 5. It's verses 1 through 20. And in that, uh, we see an, the extreme effect of when someone is demon-possessed, the, the extent that can go with that. I mean, he, this guy is has extreme power, and he's really gone crazy, and I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on in Mark chapter 5. Um, but we also see in Acts chapter 16 that it's also something that happens on a very, very low and, and not so major, massive way. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I don't believe that Christians can be completely controlled or possessed by demons. However, uh, we are commanded to be on guard. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, we're reminded of the spiritual conflict that is ongoing. And we are told to be on guard and to stand firm. Also, James 4, 7 talks about that as well. Believers should be extremely careful when considering and interacting with and even um, handling anything that might be demon, demonic activity. In the first place, though, humility is what should be exercised. There's a great example of that in Acts chapter 19. I know I'm saying a lot of different references, and we're not taking the time to go into them. I would encourage you, look those up and, and consider them. Uh, but in Acts chapter 19, we see an example where someone was arrogant, and they thought, oh, well, I can just cast out demons. I've got the ability. Well, that guy ended up getting beat up. Uh, and it was, it was not a pretty picture because he wasn't relying on the power of Christ to actually be able to do that. Um, in, in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 16, yep. um, there's also an example in Jude chapter 9, in which one of the archangels, one of the most powerful beings 
goes up against Satan. And he doesn't give a railing accusation. He doesn't make himself out to be proud and, and capable. He simply says, Jesus rebuke you. And so he doesn't try and do it in his own power. Um, and so a, a great level of humility is definitely necessary when we deal with anything in the, in the spiritual type realm. Um, secondly, realize that proper identification is challenging. There, there's an example in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, in which someone is an epileptic, and it says that they are demon-possessed. Um, and then there's one in which there's a lunatic in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 18, and that one is not demon-possessed. It's just he, that individual is a lunatic or has a mental disorder. And so there's a lot that goes on to this. The whole point that I'm trying to make is that is it possible today? Yes. But we need to be very, very cautious about jumping to conclusions or thinking that we have the power to do anything in regards to this. Um, when it comes to demon possession, Mark doesn't really give us a whole lot more than just the fact that they were demon possessed. And that Christ here is showing his power and his authority to be able to handle that. The other passages in Scripture that deal with demon possession also don't really give us a lot of explanation or uh, a test by which we can know for sure whether somebody is or isn't. It just assumes that it happens. And it is part of the reality of the spiritual realm that, is, that surrounds us to today. So, don't jump to conclusions. Be humble about it. And it's the power of Christ that is the one who's capable of handling it. Not me not you, not, not even angels, but God himself that is able to handle these things. So, Mark is simply giving us the fact that Jesus was casting out these demons. And it, it appears that there were quite a few of them. Um, we don't know how many there were in this case. And as we go through and continue looking at the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that come up over and over and over again. Christ was going about proclaiming the good news healing, and casting out demons. And you're going to see those three come up a lot of times. <clears throat> Last week, uh, I was asked a question about something that I, I mentioned about the demon, uh, Jesus telling the demon to be quiet. And that actually comes up again here. And so I want to go back just briefly and take a look at that one, uh, or make, make mention of that one. In, in the synagogue, what we looked at last week, the demon was interrupting the service. And so Jesus says to him, be quiet. And I made the, the connection that Jesus is going to be telling people not to proclaim who he is. Because one of the things that, that the demon said then was, um, back in verse 24, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And that's the point at which Jesus rebukes him and says, be quiet. Now, I think that Jesus is doing two things there. And the discussion that I had really focused on that, but I'm not sure that I emphasized the fact that he's, he's telling him to be quiet for two reasons. One, it wasn't the time or the place for who Christ was to be proclaimed yet. And as we go through, I don't really think that Jesus wants the demons to be the ones that proclaim who he is. He wants to do it in his time, in his way, and have his servants, have his disciples be the one that go out and let it be known who the Messiah was, not demons. So that's, that's one aspect of why he tells them to be quiet. On the other hand, 
with this one, he was interrupting a service. He was disrupting the ability of um, God's word to be proclaimed and to go out. And so Jesus rightly was just telling him, stop talking. Now's not the time. And so it's a both and. It is covering both of them. In this passage that we're looking at today, in verse 34, it says, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And I think that really goes back to that first one that I mentioned, the fact that Jesus didn't want the demons to be the ones going out and proclaiming who he was, what he was doing, what he was about. Jesus had the right time and the right way, and he didn't uh, allow the demons to be the ones who broached the subject and let it be known. And so in, in this, Christ was in control in multiple ways. One, he was in control over healing people, over sicknesses, over physical issues, but he was also in control over spiritual issues. He was able to cast out the demons to get them out of the people, but even beyond that, he had the power and the ability to silence them, to not let them speak, to not let them interrupt, or to, to do what wasn't at the right time. Now, Mark doesn't tell us exactly why Jesus didn't want him to didn't want the demons to say who he was. Uh, but like I said, my best guess is that they were trying to declare either the wrong time or the wrong way who Christ was. And Jesus said, no, that's not your job. You don't get to do that. I'm the one who determines when is the right time, when is the right way. Now, how long did this go on? It doesn't really say. We've, we've made it through three verses. Evening had come, the sun had set, and all the city shows up. It doesn't tell us how long this takes, but imagine for a moment if the entire population of Lapine showed up at one place just to shake somebody's hand. How long would that take? Probably quite a while. Well, Jesus is doing more than just shaking their hands. He's taking time to deal with their physical and their spiritual needs. He's interacting with them. It's going to take some time. We know that it started after sunset, and the very next verse says, In the early morning, while it was still dark. Now, we don't know exactly how long Jesus was, was working and functioning, but he had just taught, which if, if you have ever been a teacher, if you've ever given a lecture of any kind, you realize that takes a lot out of you. And so he was probably tired from that. He went to Peter's house, and he healed somebody, and then he was sitting with them and having discussions and interactions, so he probably didn't get his Saturday afternoon nap in. And then all of these people, as soon as the sun's down, they're interacting with him, and they're, they're keeping him busy. So we don't know exactly how long any of this took, but I can imagine that he was probably worn out. He was tired. Eventually, he, he does get to go to bed. We don't know what time. But in the early morning, while it was still dark. Now, just because I'm a curious mind, I went online and looked up what is sunset and sunrise in Israel right now, just at this time of year. And it is 7.30 p.m. is sunset and 6 a.m. is sunrise. So 11 hours, basically, where the sun is down. How much of that was occupied by healing and casting out demons and whatnot? I don't know. But... What does Jesus do? In the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose, went out, and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Let me ask you, who likes to get up early before the sunrise? Go ahead, you can admit to it. There, there are some. 
How many of you would rather stay in bed until the sun is fully up, shines in your eyes? I see Anya's raising her hand. My first job was one in which I had to be there by 5 a.m. And ever since then, I have hated getting up that early in the morning. That's just me. Apparently, Jesus did not have that problem because he got up first thing in the morning. He got up, he left, he went away, and he prayed. And he went to a secluded place. So it wasn't that he took a big group with him. He went to get away from everyone else, from the hubbub, from all of the craziness, from everything that was going on. Think about that for a moment. He'd been up late the night before. He'd been dealing with physical and spiritual needs. He'd been teaching till the late hours of the night. And the first thing that he wants to do is wake up early and spend time with God. Now, Mark doesn't really go into this in great detail, but I'm going to put out a blanket statement. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Christ and want to be like him, is this a way in which you copy him and do the same thing as him? Now, I'm not saying that you have to work really, really late at night and then wake up really, really early in the morning. What I'm saying is, do you take time to spend with God. In the chaos of life and ministry, which I know that all of us have all kinds of stuff going on. If you have kids, they're a distraction. They make it hard. If you have a job, that makes it difficult. If you have a yard, there's all kinds of yard work. If you have a spouse, if you have anything, if you have pets, think of anything, it's going to be a distraction. It's going to have stuff that you have to be doing. Do you take time to spend with God. What about this morning? You obviously, don't raise your hand right now, but this morning, before you got here, I know we've prayed several times since we got here, but before you got here, did you take time to spend with God? Personally, I admit I struggle with this as well. I get going with all kinds of stuff, and it's very, very easy, but that doesn't mean that we can't do a better job of copying Christ. If we say that we are Christians, we say that we are little Christs or emulators of him or copiers of him. This is one of those ways in which we really ought to be doing that. Now, as I've, as I've said this, I've looked around and I've seen a lot of, yeah, yep, I know I'm doing that or, oh, yeah, I really ought to be doing that better. And I'm not trying to point out fingers or, or anything like that. I just want to issue, like I said, that blanket challenge. Now, from other passages, we're going to find that this was not an unusual thing for Jesus. One of the most striking to me is going to come up in chapter 6, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. But this isn't something that's unusual for Jesus. He makes it his regular practice to get up, get away from the chaos and the hubbub, and spend time with the Father. While he was out there praying, his disciples come looking for him. Now, it says that uh, Simon and his companions hunted for him. And that, that idea is, is just that. They were hunting. They were searching. They were trying to find him. And eventually they do. And they let him know that everyone else is looking for him. Uh, that word, looking for him, is along the lines of waiting to get something from him. Now, most of the crowd, he had already dealt with. He had healed them. He had um, worked miracles in their presence. He had done all kinds of things. And because of that, people were wanting more time with him. They were wanting to interact with him. Everyone was looking for him. Well, what response does Jesus have? What does he do? 
he goes away. He says, hey, we need to go uh, a different direction. Now, his, his response, I think, is very interesting. Jesus wasn't there to heal, although he did. He wasn't there to cast out demons, although he did. Why was he there? What was his, his purpose? What was his point? To preach, to spread the gospel, to teach. It says, let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, in order that I may preach there also, for that is what I came here for, what I came out for. His reason for being there, yes, he healed. Yes, he cast out demons. Yes, he was doing all of these things. But his reason for being there, we saw uh, back in verse 15, the time was right, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That's what he was there for. And so that's what he does. He goes to preach, to proclaim the good news of who, Christ, uh, who he was, of who God was. And he did that throughout all of Galilee. Verse 39, he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And that's what he did throughout all of that region. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I showed a map to help us realize it's not just a couple of towns. It's a big area. And that's what Jesus was all about. As he went, as he was doing those things, we have the next episode of what takes place there in verse 40. At some point during that ministry, and we we aren't told the specific details, but like I said, Mark, in his recording of this, he likes to keep things moving. And he, he gives us some clues that it's not immediately, it's not the next day, it's not part of the events that had just taken place, but during this travel, we jump into the next episode of what's happening. And so the reader doesn't really get a pause, doesn't get a rest, to give us this information that Jesus, he's not stopping. He's not done with ministry. He's constantly going and he's constantly doing. He's constantly teaching and constantly healing and constantly casting out demons. And in one particular episode during that, Mark wants to emphasize something that happened. And that starts in verse 40. And a leper came to him, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, there are a wide variety of illnesses in Scripture that are described as leprosy. Um, Which one specifically isn't that big of a deal? But in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, it tells how the priests were to identify what leprosy was, and then what actions were supposed to be taken to deal with it. Now, throughout the ages, the, the um, leprosy, being diagnosed with leprosy, has been viewed as a curse. It was um, not a pleasant thing to experience or to be around. Generally, it did not kill, but it also never seemed to end. It was a disease that just lingered on and on. Oftentimes it affected the the central nervous system, and so feeling, touch, things of that nature would go uh, haywire, wouldn't work very well. But after years of hanging on and having this skin disorder, this, this neurological disorder, parts of the body would begin to fail, skin would deteriorate, the body would become deformed. Um, apparently it spread both by prolonged contact and respiratory droplets. And so it's, it's not a pleasant thing. And we're going to turn to Leviticus chapter 13 here in just a moment and see not only physically 
Is it not pleasant? And there were a lot of, of issues associated with it. But socially, there was also a lot going on. So Leviticus chapter 13. This is, again, right in the middle of that section that, that explains how the priests were to identify and recognize what was and what wasn't leprosy, what actions were to be taken, what the law uh, requiring in the event the very rare event that someone was healed of leprosy, there was a process that they were to go through for the ritualistic cleansing that also took place. The thing is, uh, throughout the Old Testament, we don't see very many examples of someone being healed except miraculously. And so let's let's read in um, Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. As for the leper who has the infection... His clothes shall be torn, the hair of his head shall be uncovered. He shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. So first off, we see just what he's supposed to look like. He doesn't get to wear nice clothes anymore. If someone has been diagnosed with leprosy, according to the Old Testament law, according to the Jewish customs, they were to be in tattered clothes. They weren't allowed to keep up their hair. It, it was, became ratty and nasty. It wasn't well kept or covered. And they had to wear a mask, uh, particularly over the mustache. But like I said, one of the ways that this is passed is through the respiratory droplets. So they, they were required to wear a mask. And they had to shout or announce, unclean, unclean. They were constantly in a state of ceremonial uncleanness. They couldn't go into the temple. They couldn't go into the tabernacle. They couldn't join with everyone else to fellowship and to worship together. They had to be kept separate. Now, anyone who's, who's thinking might be thinking of recent uh, diseases and experiences that we've had to deal with. There are a lot of similarities. I'm not getting into that one. In that culture, they weren't allowed to do a lot of things. In fact, verse 46, he shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Someone who had leprosy was ostracized. They were kicked out of the group. They couldn't be a part of worship. They couldn't be a part of family gatherings. They couldn't be a part of anything. They had to let it be known that they were unclean. They weren't fit for social interaction. They had to keep their distance. They couldn't be near other people. They weren't allowed to to take care of their physical appearance to look nice so that everyone would know that they were affected with leprosy. That hurts. Can, can you imagine what this individual had to have been going through? What their life had been like throughout all of this? So when it says that he comes up and he's beseeching Jesus, I don't think that he just kind of walks up and says, hey, would, would you be willing to, to help me out here? In fact, that's not what it says. It says that he came to him beseeching. The, the idea there is, is begging or, or crying out. Beseeching and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He gets down on his knees and he's, he's imploring. Like I said, generally speaking, there's very little expectation of recovery. The only examples that we have in the Old Testament of someone being cured of leprosy is a miraculous action on God's part. 
Nothing else. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but we don't have them recorded in Scripture of times. That's a rough existence. He comes and he calls out and he begs. And he makes this statement, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, I think that there's a lot packed into that. So let's, let's pull that apart. If you are willing refers to the mindset that Christ has. If you desire, if you wanted to, it's entirely up to you. I think that that's awesome because he's expressing a faith and a confidence in the ability of Christ. In fact, he goes on to to specify that you are capable, you can, you have the ability, you have the power is, is really what he's saying. You have the power to make me clean if you want to. This, this man who's been afflicted with leprosy, we don't know how long, but he's been outcast from society. He's been on his own, and he cries out with the only hope that he possibly could have, and he expresses a confidence and a faith in the ability of Christ, not only to heal him physically, but this word, uh, you can make me clean, is that ceremonial idea as well that you can make me fit for social company, you can wash away my stains, you can make me right so that I can again gather together with others. I can be a part of my family. I can be a part of my, my church or my, my synagogue or my group who wants to gather and worship. I can rejoin society because you have the power to make that happen. It's a huge statement. He is expressing a great confidence in the ability of Christ. And he says the only thing, the only determiner is not, are you able to do it, but are you willing to do it? And so he's asking, he's begging. He's saying, please, would you do this? Verse 41 gives Jesus' response. Now, there is a textual variant here. That, that some people would get into and argue about, well, what exactly is going on? And that's, that's worth taking a little bit of time and digging into. What I want to tell you is there's a major emotional response. Uh, there's the possibility that it can be an anger or a sorrow or a compassion or, or something, but whatever, whichever way that that's described, it's a, an internal deep in his gut, Jesus has moved. It's not just that, oh, yeah, you know, I, I suppose I, I could do something. No, he has a heart. He has a, an emotional center that says, you know what, I care. I am, I am moved emotionally to do something in regards to this. Whether, whether that emotion is expressed as an anger of the situation and of what's going on, uh, a distaste for sin is one option, or a, a love and compassion for who the person is is another option. Whatever way that that is uh, ultimately expressed, he is moved emotionally to take action. And so what does he do? It says that he reached out and touched him. Now... This is one of those where English is a great language most of the time, but there, there are a lot of different ways that a touch can happen. If you've had kids, you've, you've seen kids look at something that's kind of gross, and they, they, they like, you, you ever seen that kind of touch? That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is to grasp, to grab onto. The idea even goes so far as to embrace. 
Now think about that for a moment. When's the last time that this guy had been touched, had experienced physical human contact? According to the Old Testament law, the last time was when the priest inspected him and gave him the bad news. He said, I'm sorry, you have leprosy. You have to leave everything. And when that happened, he can't go back to his family and say, hey guys, here's what's going on, and get a hug from them. He can't go back and, and let them know the diagnosis. He's instantly and immediately shunned and outcast. And Jesus gives him a hug. Now, is, is it a hug like we're used to? I don't know exactly what he did. But the idea is that he grasped onto him. He was moved in the, in the heart, in the core of his emotional being. And he loved this man. And he made physical contact with him. He grasped him. He touched him and said, I am willing. I desire it. What you desire, I desire. Be cleansed. Now, I've referenced Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 multiple times, and I, I will continue to do so. That's the one that talks about that we have a high priest who, we, do, we don't have a high priest who's untouched by what we've experienced, who doesn't understand us. We have one who's been through the same things, who's experienced the temptations and the trials and the difficulties. He knows what we've gone through. And in this, we have this amazing, beautiful picture of the love that Christ has for people. That's what's, what's being expressed here. Is He didn't just academically look at this man and like, yep, you've got a disease, boom, you're healed. Okay. He loved him. He was moved at the center of his emotion. He contacted for the first time in, in we don't know how many years, gave this man physical contact and said, I am willing, I desire it, be cleansed. Immediately, the man was healed. Physically, he was healed. But, he was also culturally cleansed. The, again, this word cleansed isn't just limited to take care of the, the physical ailment, but he was immediately made ceremonially clean. That's amazing. That's the power of Christ. Instantly, to make him right, he didn't have to go through all the ceremony. He didn't have to go through all of the process. We didn't take the time to read through Leviticus 13 and 14, but in that, it's like a 7 to 14 day process in which they still have to be isolated. They still have to stay apart. And they go to the priest, and they check it out and make sure, and then they're, they're separated, and then they go and they make sure again, and they offer a bunch of sacrifices, and then... Then and only then can they go hug people and be a part of society and do all of those things. Jesus, in this moment, made him clean. Gave him that, that embrace, that contact. Took care of things and made him right. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. That's verse 42. After this, Jesus tells him, Okay, I want you to go ahead and obey the law. Obey what Moses had commanded. I want you to go, it says immediately, or sorry, verse 43, he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Jesus still wanted him to go through the process that was required of the Old Testament law. He still wanted him to go, show himself to the priest, the priest would inspect it, 
probably be amazed that, wait a minute, people don't get healed from leprosy. And if they do, it's a process. It takes a while. And yet, here, Jesus made him clean, made him right, made him whole again. But he said, I want you to to do what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. We've talked about how Jesus didn't allow the demons to make proclamations, to say who Jesus was or to let that be known. Here, again, I think that we have an example where Jesus is telling how he wants it to be done the right way. Not that he, he doesn't want anybody to know about it, but he wants it to be done in, through a correct process. And so Jesus commands him to go ahead and follow the Old Testament law and the customs as a testimony, really, to the priests, to the ones who are going to inspect, and they're going to realize, oh, wait a minute, something different's happening. Something big is going on. The proclamation of the gospel was central to what Jesus was about. Even in the healing of this just to go to the priests and do the process and let them know as a testimony. But he's proclaiming it everywhere. Now, Mark doesn't really get after the guy. And and I can't blame him either. I mean, think about what just happened in this man's life. Radically changed, radically different. You would probably, I, I expect, you would be ready to go tell everybody and let it be known. And that's exactly what he does. So I don't think that we should be too hard on the guy for wanting to, to spread it around all over the place. Unfortunately, it does cause a little bit of a problem. He spread the news about to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Jesus was no longer able to go into the various towns because this guy, who was radically changed, was letting it be known so much and so broadly that anywhere he would try even to enter a city publicly, to just walk in, he couldn't get in because the crowds were just so overwhelming. So much was going on. It got to the point that he had to stay out in unpopulated areas. Well, that word unpopulated areas is the same one as where he went to be alone, away from others so that he could pray. Jesus isn't getting much time off. He's not getting an opportunity to relax to spend time with his father. He is constantly at work, constantly going. But why was he there? Why was he there in the first place? To proclaim. To let me know the good news of who God is and what he's doing, what he is about. And it's even though this man spreads the word and it hinders the method that Jesus was mainly aiming for, he was still able to do that because people from everywhere were coming to him. They were coming from all over the place to see and to meet and to interact with Jesus. So what? I always like to give us a moment to consider. I mean, there's a lot going on in this. There's a ton of of things happening. So what? One of the questions that I started this book of Mark with is who is Jesus to you? 
Mark is going through and he's describing and he's explaining, he's telling us who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, that he is man, that he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he was the prophesied one who came and was going to do everything that God wanted him to do. Jesus comes and he says that the time is right, the kingdom of God is at hand, it is near, it is, it is time. Things are set up and ready. And we see all of these examples of who Jesus is and what he's able to do. So far, we've found that he has the authority to teach, he has the authority to cast out demons, he has the ability to heal, and here he can cleanse and purify and make right according to the Old Testament law. And all of that only in one short chapter. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, as I mentioned before, we ought to be emulating or doing the things that Christ does. As we go through this, we're going to see his attitude and his action. We just saw the love that he had for an outcast and what he was willing to do for him. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you, follow Christ. Be like him. If you aren't a follower of Christ, if you don't know him, if, you, if you're like, yeah, I've heard some interesting stuff and it's kind of cool and I, I don't know about all of that. That's what the Gospel of Mark is about, to tell us who Christ is. So as we continue in this study, I want to encourage you to consider, who is Jesus to me? Is he just some guy out there that I've heard a bunch of stories about? Or do I take this as gospel truth, the word of God, telling me exactly who he is and what he's done, and thus what I need to do in response? Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Lord, thank you for what you have done. Lord, not only are you an amazing example to us, you are our Savior. You gave yourself as the ransom for us so that we can be saved and have a personal relationship with you. Father, help us to never take that for granted or to take it lightly. Lord, you are awesome. You are powerful. You are capable. We praise and worship you because of who you are, because you are worthy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are going to stand together and sing uh, one more time just through this uh, brief chorus of praise the name of Jesus. Would you join me as we sing? Praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. He is my fortress, He is my deliverer, in Him will I trust. Praise the name of Jesus. Thank you again for joining us this morning. You are dismissed.